HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Sam Edwards, proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network, surreyfarms.com. Hello, and welcome to the 100th episode of A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and you are listening to HeritageRadio.com, HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Excuse me, I'm so excited about 100 shows. Wow. Um, I can't even begin to do the show without first thanking the executive producer, Jack Inslee, our main engineer, Joe Galarraga, and, of course, Patrick Martins of Heritage Foods USA for bringing this radio network to life. And did you know that you can actually be part of Heritage Radio Network? Just click on the donate box in the upper right corner of our homepage, and you can become a fan, a friend, or a supporter and keep these shows coming your way. Well, another hundredth celebration is underfoot. Not just my show, but it's a hundred years, and that is a hundred years of the birth of Julia Child. Her birthday is actually August 15th, but the entire year is cause enough to celebrate, um, so I decided to match it up with my 100th show celebration. Julia Child burst onto the scene, or into the kitchen scene, about 50 years, well, not about, 50, almost 51 years ago, with the publication of her cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And then it wasn't long after that that she took over our television screens, and in many ways changed how American women viewed cooking and their role in the kitchen. Here with me today to talk about Julia Child's life and the impact on our lives is Laura Shapiro the author of a biography called simply Julia Child, A Life. Laura is an award-winning writer. She was a writer at Newsweek for more than 15 years, covering food, books, and dance. She's a food historian, a food writer, and a columnist, and is the author of Perfection Salad, Women and Cooking at the Turn of the Century, and Something from the Oven, Reinventing Dinner in the 1950s. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. It's great this is, to be here. This is a, an exciting event. I know there are going to be events planned uh, probably throughout the summer celebrating Julia's 100th birthday. And a, a few little impromptu celebrations have already taken place with different organizations. Um, 
but this for you, this must be very exciting. Having spent so much time researching and writing the book that you did on Julia, tell me what, what, how? Uh, tell me about the process of researching and writing that book. The research for Julia was one of the most wonderful things that ever happened to me. Julia gave all of her papers to the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, and uh, they which was the library that was essentially in her backyard. She lived there in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And they have an enormous culinary collection with the papers of a number of other famous people. But Julia's collection is really kind of at the heart of the library's manuscripts. And when she gave them, she sent over something like a 100 cartons of material. And it, to, to, to sit there in the library and just go through... Page after page was the most wonderful experience. Julia was one of those people who saved everything. Nothing went through her hands that she didn't hold on to. So you have letters, you have drafts of Mastering the Art of French Cooking, you have all that correspondence with Simone Beck, her collaborator on Mastering. It's an unbelievable treasure trove. And you really, you kind of have Julia's life in front of you on paper. She actually saved her correspondence on carbon sheets, which some listeners may never have heard of, but for <laughs> others of us remember them. It's when you used a typewriter and you put a yellow piece behind it and you made two copies and you saved one. And so we have those. We have the, It's a biographer's dream. So that was how I got to know Julia was kind of meeting her in the archives. And when I finished the research, after some maybe six months or so just living there, then I felt that she had died. She had been dead then for a year or so. But, but this... It's, that was the moment where I felt I, I was losing a friend. Oh, yeah. And uh, and for those who don't aren't familiar with the book that you wrote on Julia Child, this was published in 2007, 2008? 2007, yes. 2007. So this was before the movie yes. Julia and Julia, and people have got glimpses of what you were just talking about and you know, and her correspondence and, and things that were going on in her life. Um, now, you did you personally meet Julia in your I, life? I had known her. I had been a food writer at mm-hmm. Newsweek and elsewhere. And, you know, she was the most accessible person in the world. Her phone number was always listed in Cambridge. People could call her. And, you know, if you wanted to know something or ask her a question, you just called or you met her at a food event. So everybody kind of knew Julia. You're absolutely right. Accessible, I think, is, is the best word to say. Because I remember um, years ago after I left the Food Network, I was doing, I was executive producer of a radio show, um, Everyday Kitchen. And our inaugural show we said, well, we have to have a big somebody big to be the first guest on the show. So I picked up the phone and I called Julia, and she said, "Oh, darling, of course." And that, <laughs> and that is what—that is what she said. If you asked her for something, she's the most unbelievably generous person to the food world. Yes. As you can imagine, the requests came in thick and fast, starting from the first minute she was on WGBH TV in Boston, and. And she did whatever she could. She supported food causes. She supported public television to the hilt. She just she was not just an incredibly generous person. Yeah. Well, you in in your um, in one of your books, and it wasn't even I think in Julia's book, but you credit Julia with with an edict to American women. Well, an edict, if you will, or or a charge that American women's role in the kitchen. And it was it was so right on target for really today's good food movement that's going on. In essence, she told women, you don't need to get it from a package. You can take charge. You can stand at the center of your own world and create something very good from scratch. 
That's quite a charge. That's really what she was all about. It was uh, it was about feeling that you were up to it, that it was you. You know, she went on television. She told people how to cook things that were difficult and time-consuming and very French, and they hadn't heard of a lot of it. She did not... She never dumbed it down. She never got on there and said, oh, this is a breeze. You're just, you know, we can do this and take this and that shortcut. It's easy. She she said, you can do it. She, she acknowledged that it was a big project. She said, you have the skills. You can do it. And she laid out each step, told you what to watch out for, signaled every pitfall. She put you in charge for that process. She made... She made people rise up to the task instead of lowering the task to them. It's what a great teacher does. That's right. It was a challenge. And if you and if you accomplished that, you <laughs> felt that you actually had a, you had indeed accomplished something. That's okay. right. So there there could be no greater gift to somebody in the kitchen than than uh, than giving them the courage to take something on. You know, in those when Julia was uh, was working on mastering the art of French cooking, she was living in in France and then elsewhere in Europe. And this is during the 50s. And she was uh, she was subscribing to Gourmet Magazine because she wanted to keep up with what was being published in this country about high-end French food. Mm-hmm. In those days, Gourmet is not what it was later on. They did not do rigorous testing of the recipes at all. And she would read these recipes that she knew were not going to work. It drove her nuts. She would say, some bride, some some young woman who can't cook is going to go and try this and she's going to, and it will fail and she's going to think it's her fault. She couldn't stand that. Her heart rushed out to that poor woman in the kitchen who was watching something fall apart at her feet. Oh. She, she said that it doesn't have to be that way. And so she she really felt that anybody who put her mind to it could learn to cook, and they should. Well, so that was almost her mission in, in the Absolutely. writing of her book. And yeah. nothing in her books fail. <laughs> they are all perfect to the T. I know, because I cooked like the young girl in the book, but many, 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 many years prior to that, <laughs> I cooked my way through them. I mean, it was really, I, I credit her with basically learn, teaching me how to cook in those dishes in that French technique manner. Exactly, because her whole method was take them by the hand and walk them through this. And she herself had learned to cook that way. When she went to Paris first with her husband, this in 1948, they were posted to Paris, and he was going to work at the uh, State Department. He was uh, working at the State Department, and he would open the, up the uh, United States Information Service in Paris after the war. And so there they were, and she decided to take some cooking lessons at the Cordon Bleu. She was already what you would have to call a good home cook. She could make things. But she, what that really meant was that she could follow recipes. She wasn't what we think of today as a cook, somebody mm-hmm. who really understood it from the inside out. And that's what she learned at the Cordon Bleu, where they still taught everything from just like, like fire had just been invented or something. I mean, you really learned using your hands and you learned every process starting from the very beginning. And it was just exhilarating. She loved it because it enabled her to take control of the process for the first time. Mm-hmm. So she learned that way, and in a way, that's what she wanted to teach. Well, it's interesting because when she boomed onto the American scene with the book, she had, of course, she had been living, if she had come back for a while, but she had been living, um, you know, out, outside the country, the woman's movement was really gaining traction. It was, and uh, things were really happening. 
But you mentioned something just now. Um, she subscribed to Gourmet Magazine. And not long ago, I, um, I heard a talk that you gave at Harvard on uh, food and gender. And you said it was on culinary hierarchy. And you mentioned something about what women, women were really cooking at that time. It, you know, we had this vision that everyone was just popping a, a frozen box into the, into the pan or uh, popping open a can. But women were really cooking. Look, there was Gourmet Magazine. People were subscribing to Gourmet Magazine. They absolutely were. Gourmet started publishing in 1941. And by the 50s, there was a cadre of people making high-end fancy food at home. There were, but it didn't even have to be at the highest end. There were always people in this country who cooked very well. Sometimes they made a great meatloaf, or they had come from another country with a wonderful food tradition, and they made, you know, perfect lasagna or some delicious, wonderful thing. There were always good cooks. My mother was a cook in the 50s. She was a great cook. She didn't get it from boxes. She cooked kind of ordinary, nice food, but it was real. So we always had a, a good food tradition in this country. It didn't go away in the 50s. What went away was this uh, was this feeling that everybody can uh, everybody has a right to that food and and it's within everybody's reach what the food industry was doing in a big way in the 50s was trying to present good food as something so difficult and so time consuming that really only your grandmother did it but you don't have to live that way and let us do the work for you we'll get it together put it in a box and that's yours and that was the message that started to go out and kind of pound its way across the airwaves in the 50s or actually right after world war 2 and uh but it, it it didn't people didn't rush to it because they didn't need it they could cook they could make the nice simple meals of good food so there was a huge variety of food going on in the 50s and there was plenty of good food as well but when i was talking about the culinary hierarchy I was looking at something that was very clearly happening at the time. You had uh, you had a, a stratum of wonderful food, and you had a kind of stratum of ordinary food for the family, and the wonderful food was being associated with men. Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to get across unless it had that male identity. And the, it's funny, the food industry, while it's pushing sort of jello and packages and cans for women, they're also pushing imported brie, nice wine, fancy oils, fresh herbs, gorgeously equipped kitchens. You remember, people in the 50s had money. It, it, was, it was an affluent moment in American history. There, there was a rising middle class and an upper middle class, and they were ready to spend money on their new homes and their new kitchens. And the the, the you know the industrial world was ready to feed that appetite for new stuff, which meant that that there had to be a stream of uh, of nice high end recipes coming across, but but they weren't directed at women. They were they were directed at men. The food had to be there, and women just didn't have the cultural heft in the in the gender hierarchy of the fifties to take on or the eye of the advertisers. At yes, least. <laughs> to take that on. You you weren't going to associate that with women. So it clearly fell into those two camps. Right, right. Well, you focused a lot of um, a lot of your 
research on the the boxes and what industry was doing to help us in something from the oven, which was a, is a wonderful book, and it really explains what was happening in the food industry in the fifties, um, and indeed trying to make our lives easier. Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> they were sort of keeping us in the kitchen with all these gadgets and all these you know premixed or packaged uh, goods, and taking us away from what was really important, and that was good food. Good food that was homemade. Right? No, exactly. The, uh, the the way they they pitched that message was um, it, it was a, to to them it was liberating. You don't have to spend all this time in the kitchen, but 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 it was undermining its own message basically by saying you're too dumb for really good food. You <laughs> you, you you don't know how to do this. It's this is beyond you. Stick to this level. You know, get all your joy from putting the apron on and having a a big skirt and pleasing your husband you know that's right for you and you can't say that um i never say that women actually absorbed that but but it was hugely powerful imagery that that just set it set itself up it just became it just it was a powerful image you had to either confront it or ignore it or go away from it but there was no there was no saying it wasn't there mm-hmm. indeed you know and it's interesting because um a lot of what Julia did, uh, some women might have said, well, but she's keeping us in the kitchen, and why should we be interested in cooking and, and making dinner for our families? Well, she was always about making dinner for friends also. And one thing that I loved, and at the you were on a panel with, with many people, and I had Dana Paulin when we were talking about the, the tele- anniversary of the television show. And in I don't know if you noticed in the background at that conference there was a loop of a videos showing of Julia on her cooking show, and the wonderful thing that was so different for women on television is that Julia always had her glass of wine and she always took her sip of wine. So she was entering into that male realm of enjoying glass of wine with your dinner. I mean, it just was not heard of in, in advertising prior to that. Oh, absolutely. So she was uh, she was going straight into the world of very distinguished cooking. And she didn't look like anybody else on television, male or female. But she certainly didn't look like the ladies or the comedians or the bubbleheads that normally populate the female television universe from that day to this. But she broke that whole imagery. She just didn't look like that. She's six feet tall. She wore a blouse and a skirt and an apron. She wore her school emblem on the blouse for the école that she ran in her Paris apartment. And uh, she was completely unapologetic. She didn't she made it fun because it was fun for her, but she didn't demean anything. She she was just she was proud to be there, happy to be there, glad to welcome you into this great world. It was totally honest and unaffected. And you know, from the second she went on television, which was the the show really started, the French Chef in nineteen sixty-three, people had televisions, but it was new. Television mm-hmm. was still a kind of a new medium. Even so, the letters she got right away, and she always got zillions of letters, they always said Oh, you're so natural, so honest, so real. Everything else on television is so artificial. We love seeing you because you're so real. Television was two minutes old. Yeah. And people were yeah. already kind Criticizing. of appalled. <laughs> well, they were already appalled by how kind of artificial and superficial the imagery around women was. 
and and they recognized that this was a true and genuine person. That's right. That's right. Well, we're going to talk more about her life and the television show and women in the kitchen when we come back after a short break. Chef, I'm Julia Child. You know, the egg can be your best friend if you just give it the right break. And I'm not talking just about breakfast eggs, but eggs for brunch, eggs for lunch, eggs for appetizers, for company, and eggs for elegance. Now take, for instance, loaf en cocotte, or eggs baked in little dishes like this, or little, these are called little ramekins. You can use uh, cute little friends. And we all know whose voice that was. That was, I mean, it, just an unmistakable voice indeed. Julia Child celebrating the 100th birthday, the year of her birth, and with uh, here with Laura Shapiro. Laura, in, in your book, it's, you, um, you mentioned that, oh, you, you talked about the fact that, um, I don't know how many people are, realize this, but that Julia's kitchen, her home kitchen in Cambridge, has been was dismantled piece by piece and paper by paper and completely reassembled in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Yes, they came in. Julia was 89. She was about to move to a retirement place in Santa Barbara, and the Smithsonian got wind of this, and they asked if they could have the kitchen if you've ever moved out of your lifelong house. This is such a splendid answer to all your problems. <laughs> the Smithsonian, take it away. But she said yes. So this team comes in and uh, they took everything. They took absolutely everything, including the floor and the walls, and they reset up the whole thing at the Smithsonian. And uh, it's now all out of commission because there's going to be a whole new food exhibit opening soon at the Smithsonian with Julia's Kitchen Return to it. But for for uh, for several years, it has been an exhibit at the uh, Museum of American History, enormously popular. And my uh, my my the thing i can never forget about about going there is uh outside the kitchen they uh, they had videos of julia running there was a woman and a small girl maybe 8 years old were watching one of them and staring as julia went through this whole cooking thing and then the, the little girl said i know who that is she said it's that cooking lady she said i love her this is a girl who had no... She just saw her, but that was Julia's effect on people. Huh. You saw her and you loved her. That's what people said in the fan mail. You know, we love you, Julia. We love you. Just, public figures don't inspire that kind of thing, but Julia did. Well, then it's only fitting that her kitchen moved from her home to our history. Absolutely. Uh, for preservation. Well, and you, and you went on to say that her talent was cooking and her medium was food, but... The way she did everything with that food, that was her character. And that's what made her so endearing. And and also, I think, so um, approachable to people. They, they, they kept with it. It wasn't like, oh, this is going to be too hard for me. She just, she, she put her all into it and made you feel that, indeed, I'm just a person. You can do this, too. And exactly. That was, that was she, important. she did that also as... Uh, you felt that she really was there to teach and to help you. She was not selling you something. The, the, the most 
powerful and immediate and ongoing thing that television has always done is sell. Julia wasn't part of that. She gave. And I think I think people absorb a completely different thing when they when they know that's happening. One of her legacies, only nobody's ever followed it, mm-hmm. is how to be a professional in the food world. She did it with complete integrity. She did not sell her name or her opinion endorse about her or she her endorsement not, we yeah. and time and again when i was uh working at the food network we would occasionally she would be on and and she little secrets she would have some of us go out some not us but my you know people who worked for me would go out because she would there was a mcdonald's around the corner and she did love their breakfast sausage <laughs> but she would never allow anyone to say that on the air or in print, because she could in no way give an endorsement to that. She just, she didn't, I guess, sully, she didn't want to sully her name. And as you said, it was integrity. She yeah. didn't really want to sell anything but the information and the instruction that she was giving to people. I think it was wonderful. It was great. And yeah. my favorite story about Juliet and McDonald's is that uh, there's a letter she wrote to McDonald's once encouraging them to offer a nice red wine by the glass. <laughs> She said, all, the, all that meat, all those hamburgers, it's just, that would really just top it off as a nice meal. A nice red yeah. wine by the glass. You know, we haven't seen that yet. No, it's coming. In no. fact, I don't know. There, I just read the other day, and oh boy, I should have my facts. But there is a fast food chain that just got their liquor, liquor license. license. Yeah. I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to do some research into that one before I say <laughs> anything more about it. Well, it's interesting because uh, this, it, her. This had not been her life, and she got a late start in, well, not that late, but but in terms of you look at these young women and men on, you know, cooking shows and, and instructors and institutes, they're all so young, in their 20s, and she really got a later start. She did. She was 50 or so when she went on television, and, and, uh, and that was fine. As I say, it was a new industry, and public television was brand new when she went on. Mm-hmm. So they were doing things that other other uh, networks were and not she, doing. And consequently, she didn't have to sell. I mean, even Dione Lucas, yes. who was a, a very revered instructor and, and cook, mm-hmm. she had to sell, you know, the caloric range or whatever it was, because that was that was television, and that was she wasn't going to be on the air any other way. Exactly. And, and Julia always said, you know, thank goodness it's public television, and I don't have to do that. But the moment she was on, she started getting requests. People would say, can I supply the fish? Can I give you these pots and pans and you'll do that and she would say no no and no and she made that decision early on not to associate herself with products but she as but her age well as as i say it was not an issue when she started as she went on uh in television and younger people sprang up and the whole kind of food world sprang up around her and people were younger she got to feel she got to feel her age she had plastic surgery once or twice little known secret yeah. people don't realize but she indeed was she, she succumbed did. to the the vanity of of wanting to get rid of a few of the pouches and wrinkles right she, well she did so it was it was vanity i mean she certainly had a healthy ego as a performer but i think she just realized i think to her it was about being a professional in that world mm-hmm. she had to uh she had to hold on to her audience. She was always very, very aware that there was a lot of, of else on television and many other things to do, and she wanted to hold on to her followers. And she just felt like she had to look good. She had, a, as I say, a, the healthy ego of a performer. What she didn't have was this kind of soul 
soul-killing narcissism that defines many performers. It right. wasn't about her. It was about doing the job and, and, and giving the message. Uh, she, and yet it was her age, in a sense, and that that I think attracted a lot of people to her, that she had this... I guess it was authority. They looked at her as an authority figure, but yet a comforting, welcoming one. So the fact that she was older than a lot of the people watching didn't seem to, well, certainly didn't seem to diminish her popularity in any no, way. No, there was, there was comfort there. But there was authority and there was trustworthiness. In some ways, I think her closest uh, analog in television, the, the, the person who ever came closer to Julia was Betty Crocker, who, of mm. course, did not exist. Right. But as a figure, she was supposed to embody that kind of not not ne- neither really male nor female, but the the voice of authority and trustworthiness in the kitchen. That's what they. That's what General Mills tried to create with Betty Crocker, and they had it mm-hmm. with Julia Child. That's right. That's right. So, while you were reading through all these wonderful letters, and you said there were so many le- were letters like the some of the major part of the research or major part of the papers that you that you read through. For the yes. Book. Yeah. She kept. She kept thousands of fan letters, and then she had this huge correspondence about all the all the books and her correspondence with her various editors, certainly especially Judith Jones at Knopf, mm-hmm. all these people who had an enormous amount to do with her work and her success. You, you, you see all of it. The correspondence with Simka, with Simone Beck, is amazing. They are tearing each other's hair out as well as their own about every last detail in mastering the art of French cooking, all the while addressing each other as in sort of semi-French, semi-English, as my dearest friend, you know, <laughs> dearest They're like beloved. sisters. They love each other, but they also are yes. constantly fighting, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So it's a very, it's a, it's a wonderful relationship. <laughs> are there any other surprising things that you found out during the research? Julia never uh, thought of herself really as a writer or a good writer, and she's she's never sort of categorized as that. People don't think about that. But the fact is, when you look at especially some of the drafts of Mastering, they are wonderful, or columns that she wrote uh, for newspapers over the over the years, and certainly many of her letters. She was a wonderful natural writer. I I, I always admire that about her. She. She would never have said that about herself, hmm. but it really comes through when you see the raw material that came through. That was great too. Well, she was meticulous too. I mean, she yes. didn't put commit anything. Just like a recipe, you know, she was meticulous in the directions mm-hmm. and in reading through some of, as she said, some of the correspondence, some things that you included in your book um, with Simka. She was meticulous. She wanted to know everything that could be a substitute that could happen wrong, the way something could look. She And that's Judith Jones to this day still yes. believes that that is so important in recipe writing, that you tell people about the food. Don't just list the ingredients and yes. the instructions. Tell them something about it. But I think that meticulousness probably helped her in her writing as far as outside of recipes as well. Yes, yeah, she had a very exacting mind. You know, she grew up professionally as, as a secretary and a file clerk more than anything else. That's what she did in the OSS when she was in Salon during the war. And uh, she, she had learned, she had learned stenography and then she could, she could type and she could type and file and she set up this sort of war message room called the registry where all these uh, high, highly classified documents went back and forth and it was some kind of miracle of filing that she did. Paul described it later. 
she had that kind of mind. Mm-hmm. She loved to do her own indexes. She said a cookbook is only as good as the index. And she at one point joined the American Society of Indexers and she <laughs> got there. She got their newsletter and she took great pride in the index. And it's that kind of mind. She wanted to do it rigorously and get to the point and, and do meaningful efficiency, pointless efficiency of the sort that was in a lot of women's magazine recipes and advertising recipes and so forth made no sense to her. But efficiency that got the job done beautifully and skillfully and smoothly without wasted effort, that she loved. Right. And this is a well-educated secretary, yes. <laughs> someone who just didn't, after college, just didn't know what she wanted to do with her life. Right? No, and it's she, true. She sort of thought she was a writer. She always said she was very surprised that the New Yorker didn't just snap her up. There she was. <laughs> <laughs> and then and she, her and a lot of other people. <laughs> right. <laughs> then she apparently failed the typing test or something at Newsweek. I, I love that detail. <laughs> they could have had Julia in their typing pool. <laughs> well, she, yes, was above all the the ultimate cooking teacher and shared with us so many wonderful recipes and and lessons but it was another famous lesson she she taught us how to cook but mostly she taught us how to live too and i think that's that was important for for everyone not just women but you know young people and and men and women at the time to take pleasure in in their food and use good food Yes. And if you ever go back to, uh, it's it's often possible to go and look back at those original French chef tapes. They exist. You, you can buy them on uh, DVD. That's right. And, uh, and see them. And there's always a wonderful moment or two in each show where she tastes something and the camera kind of goes right to Julia and the spoon and the taste. And it's like this beautiful captured moment where she's, she's tasting you know, to, to make sure that the thing tastes the way she wants it to and to figure out what it might mean. But it's also because she takes such huge pleasure in meeting the food sort of face-to-face. And you see it. You see it when the camera looks at her that way. It's, it's a wonderful moment. See? Good food gives you pleasure. Yes. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much. Laura Shapiro has been talking with us on my 100th episode of A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host, and join us again, please, on theheritageradionetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.